The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Tech for Good is one of the key themes at this year's WEF, with declining trust in the sector a big talking point. Carmine DeCibio is the global chairman and CEO of EY. AI is already uh, displacing uh, some jobs uh, that we have at EY. EY has 285,000 people. Lauren Woodman is the CEO of NetHope, a consortium of global nonprofits that help improve connectivity among humanitarian organizations in developing countries and areas affected by disaster. One of the things that could be replaced by automation or AI and in the work that we do in the nonprofit sector is aid delivery. Um, a lot of times we can replace what we traditionally send in terms of food or uh, disaster response. Cash would help, and we could do that digitally, and, and that could easily be done with AI. I'm Axel Threlfall, and this is The World at WEF, a Reuters podcast breaking down all things Davos. Today I spoke to NetHope CEO Lauren Woodman and EY CEO Carmine DeCibio about trust in the era of big data and whether it's being fatally undermined. Conway Gittens then rides the gondola with Shafi Goldwasser from UC Berkeley's Simons Institute and asks whether it's possible to protect your privacy online and Volocopter's CEO Florian Reuter about the potential of electric flying taxis. Here are the highlights. Right, well, with me now to discuss some of these uh, issues, NetHope CEO Lauren Woodman and EY Chair and CEO Carmine DeCibio. Um, really good to have both of you with us. Um, look, Carmine, let me start with you. We, yes, we talk about the concept of trust changing in the era of big data. We've talked about this for a while. Um, Edelman's trust barometer comes out and scares everybody. H how bad is it now? Uh, look, trust is always important, Axel, uh, and it's important. We, you know, we, we deal with clients every day, um, and we at EY, we want to make sure that we're trusted by our clients. Sure. So, so it's, it's very important. Uh, trust in big data also is important. I think every, every day you wake up with something that you know, maybe will, uh, will make you not trust uh, tech companies and big data. But, but I do think, in general, um, tech companies want to do the right thing. I was with a few of the CEOs of tech companies last night, and uh, you know, and there are reasons for for what they're trying to do. Um, they are trying to protect individual rights. They're also trying to make sure that platforms are open, that pla that people can freely speak on sure, platforms, sure. and it's a careful balance. Uh, and and they would say, the burden of that. Why does the burden on that fall on them uh, and, and not everyone else? We, we, um, Lauren, I want to talk in a bit about how you're trying to help NGOs harness technology and data, et cetera. But, but a general question to start, similar to the one I asked uh, Carmine. Do, do you think there has been a, 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 a almost, a, some say, a, take it quite far and say a, a fatal undermining of, of trust in this, in, this, in this context? Well, I hope it's not fatal, um, because the promise of technology in terms of what we can do, whether it's in the private sector, in the NGO sector, or anywhere else, is you know, still quite significant, and we, we want to reap those benefits. But I do think we have a challenge. Um, I think we have a real challenge, and I think you see that at, at all different levels. You know, you see it in, in developed countries, you see it in developing countries, you see it with big data, you see it with day-to-day -day transactions. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's a lot to be done. Um, Carmine, I know you're on the International Business Council, yes. uh, chaired by Brian Moynihan, and I spoke to Brian about this as well. There, there seems to me, and you tell me, from your, your position and from, from, what, from what your clients are telling you, there seems to me to be 
a, a, a real momentum building this year on the ESG stuff. Uh, you know, companies are no longer saying, look, we, we're going to do it. They're saying, we are doing it. And if we don't do it now, we've had it. Absolutely, Axel. I was in the meeting um, when we talked about, in particular, climate. And, uh, and we talked about metrics. Uh, and we actually, we did a lot of work around some of the metrics. Uh, and so did, our, did uh, the other big four. And we really went through in detail 22 metrics that we want companies to adapt uh, and disclose on. So there's some consistency going forward. And uh, we took a straw poll using an electronic, electronic device. And uh, I would say close to three quarters of the CEOs in the room said that they would adopt those metrics. They're going so to do it now. They're going to do it. So, exactly. so what we, we talked about with Brian is... How many of those three quarters, sorry to interrupt, how many of those three, three quarters are actually going to... They're going to adopt the metrics. How many will pass the test, though, and get a tick in all the boxes? That's well, the big question. Well, here's, here's the thing. You have to start somewhere here. And, and I do think once you start disclosing metrics, then it's going to put pressure on the organization to make sure that they're improving on those metrics year over year. And I think that's a big start. Yeah. If you're asking how many are going to go carbon neutral in 2020, right. you know, that's, yeah. that's very difficult for some I mean, let's do. face it, some are starting, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Um, in fact, we're going to hear from Microsoft in just a second. But, Lauren, what do you make of the, this, this commitment now, this commitment to really act now on the ESG stuff? You know, and I'll throw in there as well the this skepticism. And of course, some of the, uh, EY's big clients are, I imagine, some of the bigger energy companies as well. Skepticism around uh, Greta Thunberg's manifesto, this whole idea of total oil divestment, fossil fuel divestment, how realistic is that? Well, I, I you know, I, I think any time that you say we're going to totally stop doing something, I mean, that's challenging, right? And, and I totally agree. Things don't happen overnight. Um, and I give companies a lot of credit. You know, you've got to start somewhere. I mean, part of that is with transparency. Mm. I think your point is absolutely valid. If you aren't living up to it, though, if you're not holding yourself accountable for it, and if there aren't if there aren't consequences for not meeting those, if consumers don't stop buying products, yeah, yeah. you know that that are polluting, if people don't stop, um, you know, giving data to companies that are abusing data, you know, what I, are we going to do? Yeah, I, I guess. Well, let me ask you this, Colin. When when do you think you'll sit here in this studio and say to me, fifty percent of our companies now, our clients are able to tick all those boxes? When do you think that's going to happen? Fifty percent? Yeah, probably. And when you say tick the boxes, what do you mean? Well, the, the, you know, we, we, all these metrics that the... Uh, that, that they're the, actually disclosing the metric? They, exactly, yeah. I would say 18 months or two years. Really? That they're actually really? disclosing the metric. Okay. Doesn't mean, no, no, no. But uh, actually to, to say we've achieved that. We've achieved that. We've well, achieved that's that. going to be... The achievement's going to be improvement year over year. Mm -hmm. so, so you're not going to, you know, it's not going to be perfect um, for a long time. Um, you know, that gets into carbon neutral and when can some of these companies become carbon neutral? Some have plans out there 2025, some have 2030, some have 2050, um, which personally I think is too far out. Yeah, yeah. But, but in terms of improving on the metrics that they would disclose, that should be happening every year. The nice thing about this though, Axel, is that what we're trying to do here as, part, as the IBC, and, and Brian probably talked about this, is we want each CEO to sign up to this, literally make a declaration right. similar to the BRT right. uh, statement. And, and that has a lot of accountability with it. Um, Lauren, uh, just back to this general idea of uh, the, the digital context, are NGOs, do you think, being a little bit left behind in that context? How, how easy is it for them to keep up with this? Oh, it's not easy. No. Not, idiot, not at all. I mean, is it, it getting easier? Uh, yes, um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think the, the technology sector, I mean, the technology sector has been 
uh, incredibly focused on working with nonprofits. They recognize the gap that exists in nonprofits, yeah. right? And yeah. so the technology sector has been really fabulous at helping us think about how do we bring technology in to solve some of these problems. The challenge inside the, the nonprofits are is that it, it's not a question of the technology. It's a question of the organizational change, of the right. culture, of the right. capacity building. Right. Right. And those things aren't resourced in nonprofits, right? right? right. All the dollars right. go to program. Yeah. And so you start to see some of those changes, but it's really, really hard. I mean, I'm it's, sure. it's a shame. It's a, it's a really good point. And, you know, I did a panel earlier this week about leadership in the digital economy. And of course, everyone on the panel are, are, are the big corporates. I mean, again, you're the NGOs, the leaders on these panels, you know, the, the ones who you say are, 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 are the real issue um, when, it, when it comes to this. Let me, let, just, let me stop us for a second, because we, we do have this soundbite uh, from Microsoft. Uh, facial recognition, and we're going to talk about this in a second, yet another big worry for some. I want to hear what uh, uh, Microsoft President Brad Smith had to say about that and then we can talk about it. Uh, you do find now some governments asking, well, should we just ban it? You know, should we put a moratorium in place on all public sector use? That gives me pause. Um, you know, I've seen in Brazil, for example, how an NGO is using our facial recognition and working with hospitals, public hospitals, uh, working with police stations, and identifying missing children, in some cases adults who are suffering from mental illness who've gone missing, and these people are being reunited with their families. I don't want to stop that use. I don't think we need to stop that use. But there are certain uses that we should not be pursuing. We certainly shouldn't be pursuing them at a time when the technology is still young uh, and can lead to bias and discrimination. I think that there are some uses that we frankly should never allow. We shouldn't be using facial recognition in ways that fundamentally undermine people's human rights, their ability to assemble, to protest, so it's, it's, it's how this technology is used. That's what's critical. How much of an onus is there on, on the NGOs uh, and maybe people who aren't digitally savvy to get this stuff right? Oh, I think it's, it's incredibly important. And, and I think part of the challenge is as these technologies are being developed and as they are being deployed, are the people that, that are not usually included actually included in that process, yeah, yeah. right? And do they have a voice in how these technologies roll out and how they're governed and how they're monitored and how we're ensuring that they're not being misused. Yeah, yeah. And, and Lauren, I, I would add to that, how they're programmed, who's developing the technology, that's the issue. The underlying issue is the people developing the technology are not diverse. Uh, and that's, that, you know, when you cut through it, if the people developing the technology are more diverse, I think we'll end up with a more diverse Absolutely. product at the end. Mm -hmm. And that's the real issue here. Because I think if, if, you know, when we talk about this, whether it's facial recognition or any other type of AI, you have to have people who are developers, who are diverse, who are thinking of it diversely, um, incredibly important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, you know, we talk about trust and tech, and once the trust is gone, how easy is it to restore that trust? I mean, well, I guess the question is to be, you know, is it one strike you're out these days? I mean, it seems to me to be getting there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the, the, what the threshold is, right? Is it one strike? Is it two strikes? Um, but I mean, I think trust in technology or trust in a company that you work with is like trust in any other scenario. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get and it's very easy to lose. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's why you see such a pressure, right? And, and why you see sure. so much momentum because companies know, NGOs know, that once that trust is gone, it's very hard to get it back. What, what can the NGOs learn from the corporates, do you think? You know, from, from Carmine's clients. Sure. You know, are you saying to the NGOs here, get together with these guys, because they can, you know, 
there's a lot we don't want to hear from them or there's a lot we don't want to learn from them, but there is a lot we can get from them too. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, and that's really what we do, right, is bring yeah. those two worlds yeah. together. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think you see the NGO leadership around the world totally understands, right, what the risk is. But the way it plays out in the nonprofit sector, the way it plays out with the big multinational organizations that have you know, so much reach around the world is very different. Sure. And so we need to learn from what the private sector has done. We don't need to make the same mistakes. Yeah. We'll make our own mistakes. How, how much, your discussions on the International Business Council, uh, when you're speaking, you've got all the corporates in the room. How much of that discussion is, is, is devoted to the, to, to, to the NGOs and some of these other institutions, really? Well, and how much of it is really down to... Look, let's, I let's, hope it's let, a lot. Look, this is going to look like we're doing the right thing, but actually it's all about our bottom line. So I'm sorry to sound so cynical. Most of our discussion this last meeting was about trees. Uh, oh, it was? Okay, okay. Well, how you can make and trees was, work for it you. Was, it was exactly, it was <laughs> yes. a science, you know, lesson around trees and oxygen and carbon dioxide. <laughs> it really was. Do you, what's, what's the next step in the whole uh, International Business Council? I mean, we, you, you're going to meet, you, how often do you meet during the year? Uh, there's another meeting in the summer, Davos, um, and then we do interact uh, during the year uh, as well. Okay, uh, what's a successful Davos for you this year? I, you know, I... I've been impressed with with the level of conversation this year. Uh, you know, we've spent uh, many years, you know, trying to get this question of uh, how do we actually bring the nonprofit sector along yep. um, in a meaningful way. Yep. And but was, we do we do say that every year. Though. We uh, do, but there were sessions this year that were devoted to that, okay. and the depth of conversations that I've had this year with the multitude of actors is different. Okay, so you leave feeling different. I leave feeling different. How about you, Connor? You know what? I'm I'm excited about Davos this year. I th I think for the first time sustainability in particular climate was was front and center and I think that was a good thing you know I think Europe's been ahead on this I think the US something clicked in the US six to eight months ago yeah. and it was all brought together and I think there's been real discussion on what can be accomplished what's gonna take some time um, so I, I feel very very good about that all right very good look I've got to stop it there it's a shame uh, you know we've had Mark's, Mark Weinberger sitting there every <laughs> yeah. year for the last eight years but uh, it's great to have you uh, Carl you. with us uh, now uh, Lauren many thanks to you Thank as well you. Right, um, let's get a little bit more on uh, tech. Reuters' Conway Gittens is catching up with delegates on the resort Chateau Cable Car each day. With him today, computer scientist and Duality Technologies founder Shafi Goldwasser. So the company you helped founded, Duality Technologies, uses homomorphic encryption. What is it and why is that a better way to protect privacy and data. Okay, so when we talk about protecting privacy, there's one thing is to protect it while you're sending, let's say, a message to someone else, or sending data across the line, or even when you're storing it. But these days, we don't just want to store and send data, we want to compute on it. Like, we want to, you know, extract knowledge from it, do analytics on it, so that we know how to drive better, let's say, so we can get do lots of, lots of banking tasks, uh, so we need to analyze the data. So in order to analyze the data, it seems like you have to decrypt it and look at it in the open. So what homomorphic encryption is, it's a way to encrypt data so that you can still compute on it and do, do analytics without opening it up. So you don't have to open up the encryption, you'd never see the data, you could still sort of draw conclusions from it. Now, so what's the real world usage for it in terms of banks and other institutions? Okay, so in terms of banks, for example, you can think about open banking where you want to give the customer a better uh, advice about insurance or um, how to use their money and so forth, but then you have to give their data out so that somebody will give them better advice. So you don't, Users are wary of that. Regulations are wary of that. So instead of that, if you give, you can enable, query them to process the data in encrypted form without looking at it, and then give them advice based on that. 
So how do we, the public, uh, get our privacy back? It seems like there are so many um, app developers who, who want to take it away. Well, maybe regulations are the way. So to make sure that the, uh, the consumer knows what they're giving away and make sure that there's ways for the consumer to use the applications, get advantage of the utility without giving their privacy. And again, homomorphic encryption and these type of technologies enable that. You could still run the app, you can get everything the app wants from you without giving them data about you, without giving them access to everything on your phone, whichever device you're, you're using. It is possible. The point is there is technology and mathematics that enables it. And if we put this in place, I believe that a lot of privacy comes back. Reuters Conway Gittens, he's with a Volocopter CEO, Florian. Your company, Volocopter, makes a flying taxi. And as soon as I say that, what comes to mind is the old cartoon, The Jetsons. Am I far off? Not too far, actually. I think, uh, you know, we're headed towards a future where actually private individuals will be able to hail a ride that just takes you to the third dimension, just as, you know, similar going in the direction of the, the Jetsons. But I think in reality, we're just seeing the humble starts and beginnings of that evolution to take place. Now, how many cities have you tested in so far and, and where are the, are the future testings going to happen? So we've already demonstrated uh, manned flights in a number of cities, um, some unmanned, some manned, depending on what we wanted to showcase. Right, or demonstrate. Um, so we've uh, publicly flown in Dubai, uh, Las Vegas on stage in a casino during CES. Uh, we've uh, flown at the Helsinki International Airport. Uh, we've flown in Singapore just recently at the Marina Bay. And of course, we do a lot of our testing in at different airfields in Germany. So let's go a step back. I'm going to jump to a step. This flying tactic, describe what it is to people. So actually, it's a completely novel type of aircraft. It's kind of like a drone technology that we scaled up in order to transport people and goods. Um, it has 18 propellers, so a huge redundancy in the, uh, in the way that we propel the vehicle. So in case anything goes wrong, the rest of the vehicle can fully compensate for any failure in components. So we have an unprecedented level of safety in these new types of vehicles. And on top of that, they're fully electric. So there is the potential to operate them uh, in a fully sustainable manner. So it's going to move people from place to place in the air, not on the ground. What are your estimates in terms of, of how much fuel that's going to save the world? Yeah, so, you know, in the beginning, again, I said it's the humble start of, of something bigger, I think. We're going to see a, a whole transformation of the way that we move around our cities in the long run. But I think we will get there only step by step. Um, so initially, this will be a pure addition to existing ground transportation options on particular routes where it makes, um, you know, a lot of sense, where you have a lot of time saving, for example, or a lot of uh, distance uh, on the road travel that you can save by that. Um, so I would expect the impact uh, initially to be low, but certainly this has the potential to, uh, let's say, alleviate you know, a large part of the ground transportation into the third dimension. I would always, you know, I would actually argue that we have the potential to bring up a majority of the ground transportation into the air over the course of several decades or so. And if you take just a look, a 10-year plan, how many of these flying taxis would you foresee in, in, in like a, a city that you're, you're partnering with right now? Yeah, so I would expect like a mega city um, to, to have the potential to be deploying several hundreds if not thousands of these vehicles. Um, but I think a prerequisite for that is of course the right ecosystem including regulation and all of that. But I think what's most important is first we need to be absolutely sustainable otherwise uh, we're not part of the solution and we definitely need to be part of the solution otherwise we will not be allowed to scale and secondly we need to be societally acceptable so uh, that's why as Volocopter we put a lot of emphasis on making the vehicle extremely quiet and everyone 
who has witnessed one of our public demonstrations has agreed that it is surprisingly quiet and absolutely acceptable, hopefully, for large parts of the population. And how many people fit in each taxi? So at this stage, with current technologies, we're deliberately building a two-seater, simply because we think anything beyond that um, is a huge challenge for existing battery technology. And what makes a perfect city partner? And it, is it that you're going to the city saying, hey, we got this, this new product, or they're coming to you saying, hey, we, we, we wanna, we're interested in what you're We're in the lucky situation right now that we see so much interest, uh, because, simply because the challenge of congestion and uh, emissions and so on is so great that cities are actively approaching us in their search for solutions. So that's a very good position to be in. That's our show. Thanks to our guests and our producers, Ben Kellerman and Jenna Tucker. And thank you to the Davos Today video team who made these interviews happen. You can watch the full discussions on Reuters.com.